Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. You're cooking dinner in the kitchen and the iPad's on and you're watching like, you know, Disney Plus or something. And then you see that you have a phone call coming in and you just answer it, right? Like, it's all really well engineered. Everything just kind of works. Apple's built an empire on everything just kind of working. For more than a billion Mac users, it's part of daily life. And Apple is on top of the world. But how long can it stay there? Hi, I'm Paul Havershrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Apple is the world's biggest company. It's worth $3.7 trillion. It's in our pockets, on our wrists, on our screens. Rumors are out there, it could buy Disney. Apple is at the mountaintop. So, where to from here? Also today, more people are shopping at thrift stores. Makes sense, given the price of everything. Later in the show, we look at why big business is now trying to take a cut of second-hand deals. Up first, electric vehicles are nearly 10% of new car sales. The EV future that's been promised for so long is almost here. But for it to really arrive, someone needs to figure out how to charge all the cars. Caroline Frick is a big music fan. And for a band she loves, she'll hit the road. I am a deadhead. I follow every Grateful Dead show that I possibly can get to. I've driven across the country back and forth many times. Like, I am no stranger to... Oh yeah, the Grateful Dead are still touring. And so are deadheads. So Caroline got in her new Volkswagen EV this summer and headed west. So I followed the route 66 and... Stopped in Las Vegas and, and did some hikes in, in Arizona. And it was a groovy road trip. And hit, uh, hit the coast at Venice Beach and then uh, headed, up, headed up the coast from there. From there, she in made the out. long haul back home to Ontario. Round trip, about 15,000 kilometers. That is a big roadie, Jennifer Keene. <laughs> that is an epic road trip. But it wasn't all... Incense and peppermint, <laughs> if you will, because she had a bit of car trouble along the way. But her car was new. Yeah, her car was new, and the car wasn't the problem. It was driving cross-country in an EV and having to depend on a system of public charging stations that was the problem. And Caroline's troubles started right away. I spent days, you know, planning out a route, you know, how many kilometers I might drive in a day, you know, how long it might take me to charge. And as soon as I crossed the border, the very first stop just didn't work. What exactly didn't work? 
Well, when you pull up to an EV charging station, a public one, you usually have to download an app in order to pay. So she did that, but it was an American company, so it asked her for a zip code. Oh, yeah, but of course, she's Canadian. Right. And, you know, it's such a simple problem, but she couldn't download the app. And then she ran into a bunch of other issues on the road, including this one. The charger would start. And it seemed to be working just fine. And then it would die. It would tell me the charge was ended. Come disconnect your car. I just had to keep plugging it in and unplugging it and plugging it in, you know, and charging my car two minutes at a time. (laughs) How often did this happen? She figures it happened about once every three times. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. But it's not that unusual. Brent Gruber is with an automotive consulting firm, J.D. Power & Associates, and his company regularly surveys EV drivers about their experiences with public charging. And people report that they are unable to charge once every five times. It's hard to fathom, you know, one in five times being unsuccessful. You know, for those of us who still have internal combustion engine powered vehicles and have to go to the gas station, it's difficult to fathom that one in five visits to a gas station would turn a customer away. Well, yeah, if you're buying an EV or thinking about it, you have to have a certain amount of faith that you'll be able to charge it up. Yeah, if you want to take it on a road trip out on the highway, you um, definitely. I mean, Caroline Frick trusted that things would work out for her in her new Volkswagen. She, As she said, she mapped out her route. She saw where she needed to stop and charge. But getting there was only half the battle. So why isn't this working? Like, what's the problem here? Well, it's, it's more than one thing. Like, as we heard, you, you might have trouble with the app. Um, it can be a problem with the electronics in the charger itself. I asked Jeff Turner to explain why public EV charging is having these issues. He's with Dunsky Energy and Climate Advisors. He says EV charging involves a lot of moving parts, which make it more complicated than just putting gas in the tank. There's no communications interface between your car and the gas pump. It just knows that there's a hole and it needs to pump gasoline into the tank. Um, it's, it's much more commu- complicated for uh, charging infrastructure where the vehicle has to engage in a pretty robust uh, communication with the charger to make sure that uh, it's requesting the right amount of power from the charger and the charger is respecting that request uh, from the vehicle. An EV charger has to speak to the app and the car has to speak to the charger. So there's a lot of talking going on, Paul, and and it all has to work. Yeah, and, and right now it looks like it needs to work out some kinks. And it may seem like we've been at this for a while, but we're really just at the beginning of a massive change. And Brent Gruber says you've got a lot of different players all jumping in trying to get a piece of it. It's kind of the Wild West. There's a lot of different charger manufacturers, a lot of different charge point operators, a lot of different vehicles. So there's a lot of different things going on, a lot of moving pieces that uh, are, are facilitating a lot of those reliability issues that we see. So it's still early days in all of this, but we have a lot of companies out there and it seems like they're pretty much all kind of doing their own thing. And some places are having more success than others. Like um, people point to BC and Quebec here in Canada. Um, the hydro companies in both provinces got in on this early and seem to have nailed it. The, the other shining example is Tesla. So 
before you start writing us, Tesla drivers, yes, their charging system uh, is much better when it comes to reliability. Well, that makes sense because Tesla's obviously been at this for a while. Tesla's been at it longer than most. And Tesla's superchargers have some things going for them that others don't. They only have to charge Teslas. There's no app to download. The system bills drivers directly. And there are fewer moving parts. So Tesla has its own proprietary charging system, and and it's different than other EVs? Yeah, it's called the North American Charging Standard, as opposed to the Combined Charging Standard. This is kind of like, and and forgive me, because it's kind of like electric electricity history nerd time, but didn't Thomas Edison (laughs) and Tesla like fight about something exactly like this? (laughs) You mean direct current versus alternating current? Yes, you know what? The ACDC battle was like the war of the currents. I I love that there are echoes of that here. Like, But this time, Tesla might actually win, Paul. Hmm. (laughs) Because Ford and GM, they both say that they're going to start making their EVs compatible with Tesla chargers. And Tesla has agreed to open its system up to other kinds of cars. So it seems like the industry is moving towards the Tesla standard. And it's realizing kind of, hey, we need to get this together. Yeah. I mean, we've heard a lot about the need to build more EV charging stations, but everyone I talked to also said, listen, they've got to be dependable. As Jeff Turner told me, an EV charging station that doesn't work is worse than none at all because it erodes people's confidence in the system. Yeah, there's some work to do to make sure that everybody who's getting into this space has got a really good understanding of of what it takes to make sure this equipment is reliable and also just how critically important it is to make sure that equipment is reliable and and uh, we're not having, um, you know, bad experience amongst EV early adopters that can really dampen the enthusiasm for EV adoption more broadly. Even if most people are going to charge at home, like 70 to 90 percent of the time, you still want to know that. You could take the car out on the road, right? Just throw the kids in the back of the station wagon and drive down to Dollywood. Yeah, Dollywood. I mean, Dolly's the best. Got to go to Dollywood. (laughs) And this does need to be figured out quickly, regardless of where you're going, because big changes, they're coming. But, you know, this wasn't sorted out soon enough for Caroline Freck. You know, when when she took this big, epic 15,000-kilometer deadhead road trip, when it was all said and done, how did she feel about it? She said, you know, it was kind of stressful. Like she she couldn't be as spontaneous as she wanted because she had to know that she was going to make it to that next EV charging station and hopefully it was going to work. But she's heading back out. When I talked to her, she's she was planning another road trip to see a Grateful Dead cover band in New York State. And I'm trying to find a friend with a with a gas car who wants to go with me so we can be certain to get to all of the shows. All right. Break out the tie-dye, throw American Beauty into the A-track, hit the road. I am in. Groovy Jen, thanks. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Cost of Living on your radio, by podcast, and on Sirius Channel 169. I'm Paul Habershrude. 
Have you ever scored a smoking deal at a secondhand store? Found the value in Value Village? Digging through stacks of clothes to unearth a quality sweater? Paying pennies on the dollar? That's a sweet win. Especially these days when every dollar counts. But now big business wants a bigger piece of the secondhand economy. Our producer, Ellis Cho, Today, Finds out we why. found this amazing Versace by H&M collab. It's made of this luscious, buttery Napa leather. It was Ashley Abella goes thrifting almost every day. Oh my God, look at this. This, is, this leather is amazing. She posts all her finds on her YouTube channel and resells them for a profit. We paid $20, $23, 24 for this. Can you believe it? Crazy, crazy. The resale clothing market in Canada is hot. It's a phenomenon. It's kind of like e-commerce was. Randy Harris is the president of Trendex North America. He's been tracking the Canadian clothing market for a few decades. For the last three or four years, the resale market's growth rate has been greater than the total market's, apparel market's growth rate. And major retailers are noticing. Companies like Lululemon and North Face have set up platforms to sell their used products. Canada Goose is now the latest to get in on the action. And the whole idea is why not Canada Goose getting the money for the resale as opposed to Mary's consignment shop in Red Deer. So this is how it works. You send your coat to Canada Goose. It puts it up on its resale site. Canada Goose takes a cut and you get a gift card. Which means you have to come back in and buy their product. So I think that that's brilliant on their part from a marketing standpoint. It also means Canada Goose retains control of its brand and sets the prices for a second time round. Shreya Saker teaches at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. In a, in a sense, this feels like a way to regulate the market, right? Because now... They get to control the supply, they get to set the prices, and they get the piece of the pie. That's good news for Canada Goose. Not so good news for Ashley Abella, who makes a living finding deals and reselling them. It, it stings for me, of course, because it cuts into my business, right? Because I'm like, um, you're, you're already a huge company and you sell your things, now you want to you know, enter the resale market. So I'm a little bit kind of... I don't know what's the word, bitter. (laughs) Ashley may face even more competition in the future. Mostly, as Randy says, from high-end retailers. You've got to have a certain cachet in in order to pull that off. In other words, you wouldn't see, and I hate to pick on Reitman's, but you wouldn't see Reitman's having a resale platform because the product doesn't have that long a life. It doesn't have a, a halo effect, if you will, like a Canadian goose. Parker does. So how do resale prices compare? Well, on the official Canada Goose resale site, you're paying at least 500 bucks for a used parka. But if you're willing to hunt for bargains like Ashley Abella, the Canada Goose coat, um, they had it at Salvation Army for $100, but I'm really thrifty aside from thrifting, no pun intended, but I used the coupon, so I did get 20% off. So I ended up paying $80 for a $1,000 parka. Now that's a crazy deal. 
for the cost of living. I'm Alice Cho. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. How big is Apple? Well, its market value is 3.7 trillion Canadian dollars. That number's so big, it's almost nonsense. Here's one way to think about it. The world's second most valuable company is Microsoft. How large is the gap between them? Well, you can add up the value of RBC, Canada's biggest publicly traded company, plus the other big five Canadian banks, And Canada's entire banking sector fits into the daylight between Apple and second place. More than a billion people text on iPhones, listen on AirPods, watch Ted Lasso on MacBooks. Apple is such a part of our lives, it can be hard to imagine that changing. But Xerox and Kodak probably thought they'd stay on top forever too. Dan Hewen's been into computers for as long as he can remember. He built his first one when he was a teenager. I had saved up a whole bunch of money working at McDonald's uh, because I really wanted my own custom PC. And it's because I'd been going to these events in the city where people would bring their computers and you'd play video games, there'd be tournaments with prizes, and it was all very exciting stuff. When Dan was in high school in Winnipeg, serious gamers were mostly on PCs. So the idea of getting a Macintosh never really crossed his mind. Until... The first Apple machine that I bought was a Mac SE, which is a compact Mac, one of the all-in-ones. So these were produced from 1987 to 1990. And I I saw this ad for one. It was like $60 or, or $50 or something. And I went and I picked it up and I just thought, this is the coolest, weirdest little computer Um So the obsession grew, and I kept buying more and more of these old machines. And after a while, I started to take note, and I was like, you look at some of this Apple stuff, and you're going, wow, you know, they're finding ways to squeeze parts into tiny little nooks and crannies, and everything's just seemingly really tight, and it all just works. And you get these ancient machines on your desk, and you turn them on, and they're still just like, you know, they they snap right to life, and they're nice and bright. And I just thought, well, this is really interesting. I, you know, wonder if the new stuff is also this good. Dan now owns more than 100 classic Macs. His handle on YouTube is Canadian Computer Collector. And yeah, when it comes to Apple, he's a believer. When you're using Apple everything, it all works together so well. You know, you could be so like, oh, I got a phone call coming in, but my phone's on vibrate and you forget to turn it on. And instead of just missing the call, you're sitting there on your laptop and you get the call on the laptop, right? Or like you're cooking dinner in the kitchen and the iPad's on and you're watching like, you know, Disney Plus or something, and then you see that you have a phone call coming in and you just answer it, right? Like, it's all really well-engineered. Everything just kind of works. Apple's winning streak since the iPhone debuted in 2008 is historic. It's sitting on $160 billion in cash. Prices for the latest iPhone, which just dropped, start at more than $1,000. And Apple may not be able to make them fast enough. That's how many people want one. So will Apple just keep appling along, its roots growing deeper into our daily lives? Or does nothing last forever? 
Margaret O'Mara is the author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. She's also a history professor at the University of Washington. She's studied what it takes for companies to stay on top and how they can slip. History shows us that once you are an incumbent like Apple, particularly when it comes to hardware and the things that people spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on, uh, you're on top for a while. I think a great comp, ironically enough, is IBM. And I say ironically because back in the old days, in the first days of Apple, Apple's advertising and marketing really positioned itself as the anti-IBM. They were the scrappy countercultural upstart. In 1984, uh, Apple famously uh, bought a Super Bowl ad that was a 30-second ad that was essentially showing, uh, picturing IBM as Big Brother and Apple as the scrappy underdog. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Whew. So IBM kind of controlled everything. At one point, seven out of every 10 computers in the world came from IBM. Then the PC revolution happened in the 80s. It moved too slow. And companies like Apple pushed it from the mountaintop. Now, Apple's on top. It's worth 20 IBMs and wants to avoid the same fate. Something known as the innovator's dilemma. So the innovator's dilemma is that idea that you're a large company is innovative in one thing, is very successful in one thing, and it becomes very, very difficult to stay as innovative as you become big, in part because you've hired and invested in making one product great, and that's super successful, and you actually, you know, it, it's very hard to kind of say, okay, we need to hire a bunch of uh, software engineers, even though we're a hardware company, and do that. When you're very, very large, you have more layers of management and bureaucracy and getting things done. Systems that might have been really agile when a company was small can get bogged down and slower as a company gets larger. Uh, and so this is, you know, this doesn't hold in every case in every place, but in part it has to do with a firm gets really successful doing one thing well and to meet the next wave, sometimes it requires a true retrofitting of the whole thing. The iPhone makes up half of Apple's sales. It's been riding it for 15 years. It has come out with the Apple Watch, AirPods, but they're more nice-to-haves. Skeptics wonder if Apple can find the next big thing. And that thing has to be big. For Apple to stay on top, it needs to keep growing. That's what the market demands. So whatever's next has to be large enough to move the needle. This is a $3 trillion company after all. So maybe it's autos. The Apple car could finally become more than just speculation. The Apple Watch, with its biometric tracking, does give it a foothold into healthcare. The latest rumor is that Apple could buy ESPN, the US sports network, or maybe even its parent company, Disney. Who would have imagined back in 1977 when Steve and Steve were <laughs> creating the first Apple II that this would be, you know, where we are? But in a way, you know, Apple's already gotten into the entertainment business. Um, so much of it's the devices that it sells and makes so much money from, they're entertainment delivery devices, right? Uh, we watch uh, entertainment on our iPads and our iPhones and our computers. Um, we listen to um, music on the AirPods and, and you know, there are all these ways to deliver content. So a Disney deal would make some sense. 
it could also be a sign of a big company straying too far from what it does best. Buying Disney is just speculation. But it does point to the pressure Apple faces to find something besides the iPhone. When Margaret O'Mara looks at Apple and Silicon Valley today, what really strikes her is how much these companies are part of our lives. To find something comparable, she has to go back to the 19th century, to the era of railway trusts, robber barons, industrialists wearing top hats. Standard Oil, John Rockefeller's company, which is now Exxon. Um, the, these new kind of, those, that was high tech uh, 140 years ago, right? The brand new, nothing had existed like that before. And all of a sudden, as consumers and as business owners, you were dependent on these companies. They were everywhere. You couldn't escape their, their market influence. And I think in some ways there's some parallels here. And we see some political responses that are, um, kind of similar in terms of populism kind of rising up and people saying, I'm going to, you know, fight against the power of these centralized rich people who are telling me what to do. Margaret O'Mara says the lesson of history, time comes for us all. But that doesn't mean she thinks the fall of Apple is imminent. Hey, the Roman Empire lasted 200 years. Apple's big run really only started when the iPhone took off a decade ago. It is a whack of cash in the bank and a world full of Dan Hewins, who's on his Apple stuff constantly. What is the Apple stuff that I use? It's a phone, it's a laptop, it's an iPad. And when I think about what are the alternatives, it all feels cheap to me. That's why Apple's on top. Its stuff just works. That means for now, it's Apple's iWorld, and we're all just living in it. That's the show for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline the Fighting Kangaroo Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.